This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for July 24th, 2017. Lawyers talk about the development of the rule of law and its importance for our civilization. Who rules the rulers? And should the rulers be allowed to break or suspend those rules sometimes? In this podcast, I'll be talking to a lawyer who has studied and written extensively about this. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On the line now, I have Dr. Ryan Alford. He's the Associate Professor of Law at Lakehead University in Ontario. Uh, he's also the author of a recent book, Permanent State of Emergency, Unchecked Executive Power and the Demise of the Rule of Law. That's a big title, uh, Ryan. Can you tell me what the basic thesis is? Yes, William. Um, what's happening in the United States right now in the war on terror is so basic to international human rights law and basic constitutional protections providing for legal accountability for executive officials, that it's now appropriate to ask whether or not the United States is a rule of law state at all, which is to say not merely whether or not it's degenerated in some fashion or whether it's uh, really outside of the core protections, but is it a rule of law state or not? And I come to the conclusion in my book that it's not. Well, you're a lawyer, and the notion of a rule of law state is a fairly uh, legalistic one. Do you want to give us a definition of that? Well, absolutely. Um, all of our constitutional protections are predicated on the idea that when someone violates them, they can be held accountable. So, for instance, when we were fighting for um, the Constitution um, in the United States, in various other countries... The idea was the executive always fought back and said, well, I need some sort of emergency power to violate rights in the event that I need to protect the people. And the, the project of constitutionalism has largely been about rolling back that argument and saying that, no, uh, even when the president or the supreme executive actor in any country violates core constitutional rights, they can be held legally accountable, and they are not immune from prosecution. So we're going from a state of affairs where someone says, l'État c'est moi, I am the state, what I do um, is legal by virtue of it being legal. There was, an, there was a European concept of the will of the prince is the law. Precisely, and um, Carl Schmitt, um, the key Nazi jurist, um, said in his book Political Theology, sovereign is he who decides to state an exception which is that, well, when someone says, I want to turn off a rule of law, that just says that, well, he's the sovereign power. But what we've been doing in creating a constitution is saying that, no, whenever you exercise legal power, you have to do it within a framework where there is accountability and where there are limits. But unfortunately, in the war on terror, there's been severe pressure on that paradigm. Okay. I think you're probably correct that there are problems within with democracy in the United States as there are in even the most democratic countries. Um, but, for example, the Economist Intelligence Unit, this is a, a research uh, unit associated with The Economist magazine, they maintain what they call the Democracy Index, and they anal analyze um, dozens of different metrics, and they rank about 170 countries 
by their by the quality of their democracy uh number one is norway and uh, number 170 or thereabouts uh, last place is north korea the united states comes in at number 21 that's relatively respectable isn't it well it's possible to have a democracy and also not have a rule of law so what you have in that situation is you have what's called an elective dictatorship so you can choose your dictator who can then say well i think you need to die for the good of the state at which point you might reconsider your vote, but you have democracy without the fundamental protections of the law. So you can have one without the other, but I would argue that it's a pretty frightening affair, even though you still have the theoretical possibility of saying, well, I, I actually prefer the other dictator to this one. And um, I want to say on the, the concept of the, the rule of law, because this is something that is very, uh, it's very important to the development of, of civilization. And I remember once going to a place in Greece, I think in Crete, uh, where many thousands of years ago, somebody went and carved all of the laws of that village on a wall where anybody who can read and write, which was not everybody, but was most people at the time, anybody could go and point at the law and say, that's the law, and they could have at least the moral force to enforce it. Um, to compare, for example, the United States to regimes, perhaps some countries in Africa, some in Central Asia, where you simply have no recourse to justice if a wrong is done to you. Is that really rational? Is that really justified? I think so. Um, so I th what we're talking about when we say the legal order is specified, when we create a rule of law, that's to prevent the government from making up charges, essentially. So saying, well, that's seditious libel and you can be killed, or that's treason of some sort and then executing you. Uh, so <laughs> I, I often compare this. The analogy I draw is to a comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes, mm -hmm. where Calvin has a game called Calvin Ball. And so people are playing it, and then as it's being played, the rules change suddenly. So um, when um, an American citizen was charged with, uh, well, actually, it's interesting, when he was charged, to use that word in a less technical sense, when the executive power in the United States said, that person's a terrorist, um, there was a process in the executive branch before the president signed a piece of paper that authorized a drone strike to kill that American citizen. And he went to court twice. So, which is to say his father and the ACLU went to court before he was killed um, to ask uh, a judge, a federal judge, to tell the president, you can't do this, this is not legal. Um, you can't kill someone without providing any due process, that being the established law of the land. Um, the court said, well, I can't judge what the president's doing in national security. So the president is allowed to play Calvin Ball as long as he uses the words national security. And right now, uh, he doesn't use that power very often, um, largely because I think President Obama, where these doctrines continue to develop in a very dangerous way, uh, had some sense of restraint. But he, he preserved these extreme executive powers, and now they've been handed over to someone else, someone who's perhaps a little bit less reluctant to use them. In the event of a major terrorist attack or a war, let's say um, American involvement directly into the civil war in Syria or a confrontation with Iran, you can, you can imagine those powers being used in a much more fulsome manner and that looking much more like a totalitarian state. So Edward Snowden used the phrase turnkey totalitarianism, which I think is quite descriptive. The idea is that the framework for the exercise of these unrestrained, unaccountable powers exists, 
it only takes someone with political will to use them. There is no legal accountability for someone to step in when they're used in that much more problematic way to say, oh, wait, no, you, you can't do that. And in fact, there's precedent that those other political actors can't intervene, which is quite frightening. Um, the United States, you're saying, is now not a rule of law state. Would you think that it ever was? Uh, I would, actually. Um, and, and so, so, so when did it stop being a rule of law state? Well, we had a, a real problem with the rule of law prior to Nixon's resignation under threat of impeachment. And then after that, there was a careful reconstruction of the protections of the rule of law. So they put into place all of these restrictions on the president that would make it possible to hold them accountable legally. And then they were stripped away post 9-11. So for me, it became uh, evident that America wasn't a rule of law state when uh, the Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, appeared before Congress. And they asked him, well, do you believe, as the Bush administration did, that the president has the power to kill an American citizen with a drone strike on his own authority? Eric Holder said yes. And the further question was put to the Attorney General, does he have the power to do that within the continental United States? And the answer was yes. So at that stage, when the Attorney General of the United States says before Congress that the President has the power to essentially um, execute a lettre de cachet or some sort of legal order that says you need to die, which is unreviewable in any court, and that can be done anywhere in the world, outside of the United States, inside of the United States, how can we say that the president has any legal accountability? Because your right to live is merely conditioned upon his will. Um, that may be the case, and that's a, that's a compelling argument. But surely somebody who supports uh, the, the president's right to do that would point out that the United States is facing extraordinary adversaries who have little or no restraint on their behavior and who not alone are willing to kill not just competents but civilians but are actively targeting children and civilians. Isn't it necessary to take extraordinary measures against them? There's a number of responses to that. The best one, I think, is what would that do to us? So we can do that. We can, we can stare into the abyss long enough that you know, it stares into us or in fighting monsters, we can become monsters ourselves. Uh, just to put things into perspective, though, um, the... Uh, the, the tower fire uh, at, yeah, in, in London uh, a month ago. This is Grenfell Tower. Yeah, the Grenfell Tower fire killed more people than all terrorism in the United Kingdom post 9-11. Uh, if you take the terrorism numbers, including the 9-11 attacks in the United States since, since 2001, more people in the United States have died after slipping and falling in their bathtubs. So, yes, you know, these are very terrible people. Are they an existential threat to the United States? Uh, first of all, I would argue no. Um, a, a colleague of mine, Robert Diab, wrote a fantastic book on this called The Harbinger Theory. We constantly rely on this idea that these terrorist groups are an existential threat to our way of life, rather than essentially being sand fleas. Uh, by comparison, certainly, to uh, enemies that we fought in the 20th century, um, Nazism, uh, Stalinism, you know, you know, countries controlled by totalitarian orders. That hold on a second, hold on a second Ryan. Ryan, are you sure that's true? Because, um, for example... Pakistan is a very complex state with a very complex interaction of uh, different powers, but it is a nuclear-armed state, and there are at least some elements within the government of Pakistan and within the security services of Pakistan that support uh, the Taliban stroke al-Qaeda and would be quite happy to drop nuclear bombs in the United States. Uh, North Korea 
probably does not yet have the capability to deliver a nuclear strike to the United States, but they're certainly trying very, very hard. Those are existential threats, aren't they? Uh, I would say a country armed with nuclear weapons in uh, a hostile relationship with the United States might be an existential threat to the United States. Um, so let's, let's well, well, let's say a renegade, a renegade element within the ISI, the Pakistani uh, security services, who gets hold of one of their bombs and is willing to pass it on to um, to Al Qaeda or the Taliban. Okay, so hypothetically positing that a suitcase nuke is plausible. Let's just say that's plausible. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps, but even if it is an existential threat, so I think I can concede that premise and still say that you don't need to tear up a thousand years of constitutional development to deal with it. Uh, we, we, so, for instance, there are always arguments that we need to take the gloves off and fight dirty in various ways. Dick Cheney, we have to work the dark side. Um, so, so that's used typically to justify torture. Torture doesn't work. It actually doesn't produce reliable information. And every credible expert in the area will tell you that, that the way that you get information from terrorists is via rapport-building um, interrogations. Mm -hmm. uh, you put the person in isolation. You then uh, have someone who's ex exceptionally skilled um, building that rapport psychologically, and eventually you receive reliable information rather than receiving um, somebody telling you that he tried to kill the pope uh, or, you know, essentially confessing to killing, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Queen Mary. You're making it, very implausible admissions. Which, which we have, which are incredibly problematic. Yeah, and blowing up the Brooklyn Bridge, I think, was one of them. <laughs> right. And um, so why do we, we need to have the argument. Uh, exceptional arguments and claims require exceptional arguments. So why do we think that we need to tear up the rule of law to fight terrorism effectively? I, I certainly haven't heard a plausible argument, although it seems to have some sort of a currency just because, well, we need to take extreme measures. But this is the real problem. Everyone says, well, we need to do something. But is that something effective? Will it actually have the effects that we're positing that it'll, it, will, it will produce? And usually, upon reflection, the answer is no. So I don't know why we want to create this exceptional state, unless, of course, your plan is to create a totalitarian political order, in which case it's uh, it's great. It's, it's very useful. Well, well there's, there's one case that uh, I can't call to mind the name of the person involved, but was uh, an IS bomb maker uh, based, I think, either in Syria or Iraq. I will try to include uh, more details about it in the show notes, but had a specific tactic of keeping his young niece at his side all the time. This guy was an expert bomb maker. He was watched for weeks with drones, always with his young niece by his side. At one point, uh, she left him and that was the moment he used to uh, to basically hit him with a drone strike and kill this man. Do you really think that any of the United States enemies would be so careful? Um, well, is it really about them or is it about us? Because we have to ask ourselves, do we want no, to... No, no, hang on, hang on, hang on a second. This guy is making, working on making bombs that, for example, can't be detected by airline security systems. Okay. We, as Western civilization, were civilized enough not to interrupt his bomb-making work by risking the death of his niece as well as himself. That is orders of magnitude more merciful 
than anything he was willing to do. Can you see how, while you may be legally correct, morally it really feels that we're on a different plane there, doesn't it? Well, I'm not making the argument that we should be morally superior to these terrorists, which I believe we are, but rather that if we pursue them in certain ways, we will damage our own ability to function politically in a way that we prize. Uh, that in fighting the terrorists, we will damage our own legal order, which will cause more damage to us uh, in the long run than the terrorists themselves or that, that they could possibly do. So Osama bin Laden had goals. He wanted to pull the United States into a wider war into the, in the Middle East. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain that he would have rubbed his hands with glee seeing the terrorism suspects at Guantanamo Bay in jumpsuits being abused as they were. So do we want to do things that are productive or do we want to do things that are counterproductive? Um, it, it's not just about saying, well, we can still do these things and be morally superior, but rather do we want to do these things in a way that degrades uh, our vision of ourselves in a way that might not reduce our, us to their level, but certainly bring us perhaps a little bit closer to it. Talk to me a bit about, I mean, you mentioned an American citizen killed by a drone strike. I suspect that was an American citizen who may have had dual nationality. Um, but it talks to me about Americans who live in the United States who might be listening to this podcast. What's the implications for them for what you see as, as the, the uh, reduction in the strength of the rule of law? So right now, they don't have very much to worry about. It's pretty clear that as long as America is not facing some, some large threat externally or internally, that these extreme measures wouldn't be used. Uh, I would mention that President Nixon had plans for mass internment of Americans. Um, remember that during the Second World War, Japanese American citizens were interned in camps um, and deprived of their civil rights on the basis of extremely flimsy allegations that proved to be entirely false. And in fact, there was an admission that the, uh, somewhat some years later that, they had, that American officials had known at the time that there was no threat from Japanese American citizens. Um, there are there were lists that were compiled as late as the Reagan administration. So um, there was a plan called Rec City Four. Uh, were there to be an American war in Nicaragua, that something like 80,000 activists would be rounded up and put into camps. Um, there, you know, there, there are real threats to uh, people's lives. If the president has that power to do things like intern people without trial or kill people without trial by drone strikes, and those will actually affect people's lives should there be a terrorist attack of the type uh, that occurred on 9-11 or some sort of war um, externally that would threaten terrorism inside the United States. So, for instance, war with Syria, which would implicate Hezbollah, which has capabilities to inflict terrorist attacks within the United States. So uh, it's, it's really important that we address these legal powers now if we are worried about the president using them irresponsibly during that sort of crisis. Uh, give me a best case scenario of how this would be, uh, how this would be rectified. Uh, what we need is a movement that would convince the political actors that are meant to hold the president responsible, which is to say the American Congress and the American courts, that they need to do their jobs. And if, uh, the blueprint is the Nixon administration. So the Nixon administration, there was an attempt to create what was called an imperial presidency. I would argue that what's happened 9-11 is larger than an imperial presidency, but an, an elective dictatorship. Um, but what people did was they wouldn't stand for it. Uh, we look at the protest movement in the United States now, it is absolutely dwarfed by what happened after the Vietnam War was illegally expanded to other countries in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. so Cambodia, much, 
Yes, so you saw protests of over a million people in Washington periodically, uh, protests multiple times a day on college campuses, shutting down ROTC offices, things of that nature. We need a protest movement of that size and scale. And give me a worst case scenario. If that doesn't happen, what what would you fear? Um, Okay, so let's imagine that uh, President Trump um, enters into hostilities in Syria in a much more aggressive way. So he goes to war with the Syrian government, uh, Iran is pulled into that conflict. Uh, Russia uh, is pulled into some degree, not to the point of being declaring total war on the United States. There are then terrorist groups affiliated with um, political actors in Syria that think seriously about terrorist attacks inside the United States. Um, the president draws up a list of people who should be interned because of their links to that group. He calls for special registration of Muslims uh, who are then forced to report to immigration offices. Uh, where that determination will be made by a low-level uh, State Department official about whether or not they should be sent to an internment camp. Uh, and then drone strikes are authorized inside the United States for people who are allegedly participating in those plots, uh, at, which, at which point um, we lose all capability of tracking what's going on. Ryan, um, you're starting to sound a little bit like Alex Jones. That, that's exactly the sort of thing that he imagines... Well, you did ask for a worst-case scenario. That's true. Yes, that's true. But but do you think it's plausible? Well, okay, so let's look at the precedents here. So there was internment of the Japanese-American community. Sure, but since then, the major um, constitutional violations on a mass scale really haven't happened. You said that at at points under Nixon and Reagan, there were plans, but the point is they didn't do it. Right, but would they have? Do we think that President Nixon or President Reagan would have, for instance, authorized mass internment of American citizens? Um, I think absolutely yes. I think Nixon wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have paused for a second if he thought it was politically necessary. And we didn't see the kind of pressures on the American state that led to that. Um, so, for instance, but it doesn't take very much. I mean, you just have to point to Diplock courts, for instance, or point to um, the kind of legal regime that existed in Northern Ireland during the Troubles mm-hmm. to find a pertinent example. And really, you know, that wasn't um, a state it, it should be said, though, that there is no, or at the time there was no constitution uh, applying to the United Kingdom and the parliament. There was also no uh, president, I mean, the queen as a figurehead, but there was only the parliament and the parliament was free to pass any law that it wanted without limit. So yet leaving aside um, the European Convention on Human Rights, yes. Um, so the United States has something to prevent that. So, and, and it's prized, you know, I mean, you have the founding fathers of the United States saying uh, someone who would sacrifice their liberty for security deserves neither security nor liberty. And, and will get neither. And so, you know, um, why, how have we gotten to a point where Americans say, well, this, this, this small threat or even a medium-sized threat is uh, something that we would sacrifice our political order for? And um, so, yes, I think there certainly is a tinfoil hat type argument to be made about how horrible it would be. But I'm quite concerned with just the theoretical possibility or, or even just the, the state of affairs that exists now where American citizens are being killed um, by drone strikes outside of the United States, for instance. Dr. Ryan Alford, Associate Professor of Law at Lakehead University, Ontario, although I should point out you are a U.S. qualified lawyer um, and author of Permanent State of Emergency, Unchecked Executive Power and the Demise of the Rule of Law. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, William. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. 
That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on July 24th, 2017. I have links to Ryan's books and references for the things we were talking about in the show notes for this podcast that you can find on the website. And do you know somebody who I should interview or have an idea about what topics I should be covering? I'd be very interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO. You can also follow Ryan Alford at Ryan underscore P underscore Alford. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can use Apple Podcasts or Google Play or any other podcast app or software. There's links and an RSS feed for all that on the website. And I know not everyone uses podcast software. A lot of people just listen on the website. So you can also enter your email address and get a free email alert each time a new show goes online with a link to click on and listen to the show. But no spam at all, I promise. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Next Monday, that's July 31st, I'll have an interview with the legal scholar Peter Ballant about tolerance, what we should tolerate and what we shouldn't. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Liam McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.